you should come and talk to us. You know, we need a chef. You should be the chef for our new cafe. My perception of myself was that I didn't have enough restaurant experience Mm -hmm. because, you know, I had four months at Blue Hill and then I went straight into being a private chef and doing events and things like that. Um, In one regard, I probably have been in more kitchens than most chefs have in their life and seen more operations and like high end um, establishments. So I do have a good idea of like systems and whatnot, but like the consistent like day in, day out, like, you know, I didn't know how to do any of it. And so I felt like I don't actually know how to do this. So I don't think I'm the right person for this job. And he said, no, my my Scorpio rising is telling me you're the right chef for the job. Like, will you at least come and meet with us and have a look at the deck and see the property and whatnot. And so I said, okay, because if you can cook brunch for 200 people on top of a mountain, you know, in a remote part of Utah, you can run a restaurant in LA. Just having like one person who, who says, Hey, I believe in you and I'm going to help you. And it's like, it's like, like, okay, let's do it. Today on the LA Food Podcast, I'm your host, Lucas Ervodio, and I made mayonnaise from scratch for the first time this week, so please feel free to hand me a monogrammed apron and an honorary certificate from Le Cordon Bleu. While I can't confirm she's ever made mayo, we do have an actual chef on the pod today. Kat Turner is chef and partner of Highly Likely, one of LA's hottest all-day restaurant concepts, They've been serving the West Adams neighborhood for several years now and are on the verge of opening a second location in Highland Park. Chef Kat joins us to discuss Highly Likely's food and new location, but also her own personal journey, which has taken her from acting in a David Lynch movie to private chefing for Billy Corrigan on tour. Also, did I mention she's a chopped champion? We talk about what that was like, and I even give her a virtual basket of mystery ingredients to see if she still got it. But first, we're joined by world-renowned Top Chef scholar Father Saul to discuss the late-breaking news that Season 10 champion Kristen Kish will be taking over as host now that the great Padma Lakshmi has stepped down. Will she be up to the challenge, or is this a missed opportunity for the show to go in a totally new direction? We discuss all that and what we think of setting season 21 in Wisconsin coming up next. So without further ado, let's chow down. Before we welcome today's illustrious guest, there's some breaking news in the world of Top Chef and... To discuss that breaking news, we're joined by a man whose wardrobe consists of three earth tone shirts and a pair of hiking boots. It's Father Saul. You, that's literally all I've worn this week. That was a pretty good call, call out. It's but all you have. What else do you need? What it's else do you have. need? That's what I ask. I'm a, I'm a grown man. I don't need more than that. Hiking boots are kind of perfect because you're prepared for any situation, right? You're prepared for uh, muddy terrain, uh, acceptable in most cities. Um, some restaurants will let you in. You're pretty much you're pretty much set. Yes, particularly for hiking, I am set. Correct. <laughs> well, look, dear listener, Father Saul is here to discuss the news that Top Chef has a new host. It's season ten champion Kristen Kish, and also the news that season twenty one will be taking place in Wisconsin. This is about as seismic as a week as Top Chef has had in recent history. Father Saul, how are you holding up? 
I'm doing well. I'm excited by this news. I love how they just finished their first ever Top Chef World All-Stars, crowning its first ever two-time champ. And yet the announcement of Wisconsin has you saying it's the biggest week in Top Chef, like, fucking ever. I feel like they've had bigger weeks more recently. But it's certainly a, it's a, it's a hard change of direction, I will say. Season 20 to season 21, hard change of direction. It's seismic when coupled with the Podman news, obviously, right? But yeah. the change in direction that Kristen represents, I think, will be one of the more seismic things that has happened ever, maybe, in the show, right? So let's 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 talk let's focus in on Kristen first as a host. Were you surprised by her selection as the next quote unquote Podba? I not not massively, but a little bit. And here's like here's how I feel about that decision. So I am actually about Kristen herself am, am cautiously optimistic, actually. She came in as a guest judge in Portland during the COVID season. I think she's done a good job. And she's come in other times as well, I think. She has experience on uh Iron Chef on Netflix with Alton Brown. That was, that was a little bit of a clunky co-hosting situation, and she was a little bit more frenetic in that show. But I think she has the poise and the cachet to do a good job here. She also kind of like if she wants to, she can turn on like a bit more of like like the like the Padma glare or the Padma like stoicism that like is really scary and intimidating. I think she can do that and bring like, the right kind of balance. And of course, as a former winner, she has a lot of sort of respect. I so I'm, I'm going to go in cautiously optimistic there. I am. A little disappointed they didn't try to get more creative with this because the thing is this I think uh, like for you and I when we first tested we texted each other about this news and it's Kristen I think we were a little a little disappointed and the thing is this everyone would have been disappointing you can't replace Padma right and I kind of wish they hadn't tried on a one to one I would have liked like a more but it was like a rotating set of hosts right or different hosts per season or the structure changes even a little bit right I, I think it could have. They could have gone a little bit out of the box here with like a big season 20 Padma send off. It's a new generation of Top Chef. Let's try something new and not try to replace the person who's been the face of the show or one of the faces of the show for two decades. Let's switch it up. Instead, Kristen has some huge shoes to fill. And I think it'll be maybe a little, it'll be a little tough out the gates is what I expect. Yeah, I agree. Look, when we first texted about this, I think I sounded a bit more dour than I feel right now. So I think the words I used specifically were, this is kind of like a Trevor Noah-esque decision. You're following up Jon Stewart and anybody you pick, no matter who they are, is going to feel like a little bit of a letdown, right? I also added on to that, that I wasn't so sure based on her past hosting experiences that she was going to be a compelling enough choice because- the one time I have seen her host, it's a show you just mentioned, Iron Chef, alongside yeah. Alton Brown. And I think you use the word clunky, and that's a pretty you know generous way to frame it. I thought it was a little cringy at times, frankly. Yeah, yeah and it was. However, the more I've thought about it, I don't actually think that was her fault. I think that the tone of Iron Chef maybe just doesn't suit her as and her style of hopefully what her style will be of hosting. The whole tone of Iron Chef is very campy. It's very kind of quirky, especially the hosting, right? Like yep. Alton comes in with this like 
faux serious tone and they're but they're also making like really dumb punny jokes all the time and it's it's kind of got like a bit of a bill nye flair when they're explaining different foods and whatnot i'm not sure that that style of hosting suits her and maybe that's the issue i think in the top chef universe when she's going to be in a setting where she's really comfortable, it's a much more serious and sort of like austere hosting gig. You got to sort of bring that gravitas. And something tells me, maybe based on having seen her when she guest judged in the past, especially on the Portland season, I think she has that in her. I, th- I think she has that in there, in her. And yeah. I think she might be actually much better suited for this than I initially thought. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you might be right. And, and the Iron Chef thing is a really great point because also they didn't need her she wasn't filling a gap on that show it yeah. was like like shoehorned in i'm not sure why they did it and i don't think it worked particularly well in this case she's obviously filling a gap and i think she may have she may have the right personality and the right tone to fit it i think i think actually she will i like i said it's kind of like <laughs> i've done I, I i apologize to all my non to all the non-sports listeners here it's like when uh it's like when tim duncan retired dude like tom colicchio was the greg popovich here Tim Duncan leaves and like they have like a, and obviously there's a whole, we won't, we won't delve too deeply into the sports metaphor, but like, and, and Kawhi Leonard or any of that, but Tim Duncan leaves and you have a period of like a little bit lost in the wilderness waiting for the next person to come through. And I think even with Kristen here, and I think she will settle in and be great. It'll, I would expect it to take like maybe two seasons for it to be yeah. like, and it's Kristen's show. Right. Um, even for Pado, when she started to mention, it took a, a year or two or three for her to really find her feet. So no, I think ultimately it's going to work out. And I, I'll be honest, I don't know if there's any name, single name they could have put out there that would have made us be like, all right, they fucking nailed it. I mean, Brooke might've been interesting. I don't know if they wouldn't fucking like, if Sarah came in and was it, I'd be like, whoa, that's interesting. I did not see that coming, but I think Kristen's going to do just fine. I think she's the right fit for the role. I'm actually talking myself into it more and more as we go on. And uh, you do with most things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I, so one thing that Padma had when new contestants came in was this sort of like, wow, starstruck factor. Yeah. Like part of the almost like intimidating experiential factor of top chef is you walk into that kitchen and then all of a sudden you're confronted with Padma, Gail, Tom Colicchio, and you know, ex really impressive guest judge yeah Uh, Kristen, i don't think has that right now but she definitely has a chance to get there i'm just wondering could they have gotten someone that already had a bit of that factor i i don't i don't know and i'm also i actually i mean i wasn't around 20 years ago i'm not sure how quite how much padma had when she came in either to be fair and top chef really helped her build it up but she was an international celebrity and of course like a supermodel who had been on like magazines and all that stuff and like high profile marriage or whatever yeah, yeah. but it was a different show back then like yeah when right. it started the show itself probably didn't have the same gravitas because the contestants were kind of going on there and saying okay we'll see how this goes but now it's such a mythical show that contestants know what to expect and know what kind of effect it's going to have on their career and yeah. so it's just a very different situation now. Like back then they probably couldn't have attracted the kind of chef I'm talking about right now or the kind of Mm -hmm. celebrity or host I'm talking about right now. Yeah. But now they certainly have the clout to do so. You know, this is not the right person, but someone like a Curtis Stone, you know, that kind of level. 
Well, he's been in the world too. He did Top Chef Junior, I think. He was like the primary judge, like the Tom Colicchio role for that. I might have filled in here pretty well, but I think like I, I I'm glad they kept it quote unquote in house to like a Top Chef alum. I am happy about that. I think, and like I said, I think there's actually no single other name that would have worked. The only other compelling option here would have been if they changed the format. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it makes sense that they didn't because that's a big risk, right? But like, if they had, like I said, a, a rotating cast of hosts or something, or you know, have like as Padma suggested in her interview with LA Times, I believe, like had Gail almost situate into the host role, but still be a judge, and then have like maybe an open seat for an alum judge or something like that. Yeah, that'd um, be interesting. But I think those are all like probably too risky in the end. Um, and I think it, yeah, I think it makes sense for them to keep it in world. And it's just like, look, you lost Padma, you can't replace Padma. You lost Tim Duncan. You can't replace Tim Duncan. Let's see what we can build. I'm looking forward to seeing what Kristen's judge voice, how that evolves, right? Like, what is she going to bring to the table? How is she going to – I wonder if she will do quick fires by herself or maybe if Gail or Tom will join her for quick fires now, Um, like at least in the beginning. It will be interesting to see like kind of what sort of persona she takes on. The one thing I'll say really quickly is that I hope doesn't – which I'm sure will be there at the beginning, but I hope goes away. Like Tom and Gail – and, and Padma minted Kristen, right? Mm-hmm. So she's going from like a place of mentorship, mentor to peer almost, or like, you know, literally contestant to peer. And I'm guessing there's going to be a little bit of a power dynamic there, whereas Padma, Gail, and Tom were like equal, equal. I think for, for the most part, Tom obviously still had judge. I think you might, what I don't want to see is Kristen deferring, basically, yeah. overly deferring to, to, to Tom and, and Gail um, when she has a really strong voice herself. Uh, that It might begin that way, because again, mm-hmm. I don't think the show was even founded with the idea of Padma being a judge. I might be wrong, but That's I don't think she was, right. she wasn't That's sitting right. at the table for a while. So she kind of grew into that. And, you know, I think there's going to be a learning curve for Kristen as well. I disagree with you. I don't think they had to keep it in house and I'm a little disappointed. Mm. I think that's where I, that's where my disappointment comes from. I understand the appeal of having someone who has done the show before and I do think that that will add something that wasn't there before, a new a new dynamic, uh, which could be interesting. But I think it would have been way more interesting to me to go a completely different route and maybe pick like an entertainer, someone who can make the show, I don't know, maybe even funnier. Like, do you watch Love Island? Uh, I've tried to watch Love Island. <laughs> and failed? I just can't do it. I just yeah. can't do it. Uh, it probably says a lot about your intelligence versus mine. <laughs> but one of the devices that I really appreciate in Love Island is it can be a really, you know, as silly as it sounds to go find your partner in like a villa over the course of a summer. It can be a really dramatic show. Like in te- like emotions get really high, right? People do some <laughs> fucked up things and people get upset. And to almost offset that, they've got like, a really funny over the top Scottish narrator who acts as like sort of like the perspective, like the audience's perspective on the show. And it just, it just creates this really fun viewing experience. I think that mm-hmm. really adds a new di- dimension. I wonder if they could have done something that shook up the format a little bit, like added a narrator or something like that, or, or Ooh. added maybe, maybe narrator is not the right, the right <laughs> move that in and of itself, but just toying around with using this as an opportunity to shake up the format a little bit, you know, and to your point, you can't replace Padma. So the less you try, I think the more successful you can ultimately be. 
Yeah. And look, it's just going to be a fundamentally different show going forward. And I, and I don't disagree with you. For example, as I'm thinking about it, the one you, you said they didn't have to keep it like in the world of Top Chef. I think if they, if this was the route they're going, I'm not upset that I, I like I said I'm glad they did. But what you made me think of is like, look, it would not have been hard for them to create a rotating alumni judge seat per episode or per season. That would have been really really cool. And then like you said, a more entertainer or like a host that's completely like uh, different from what a Padma voice is, who is more that whatever fun engaging. Still has to be serious and have weight, but a different kind of tone. And maybe as a host who is not expected to be at judge's table in the same way Padma was, again, not trying to replace her, but then you have like uh, your guest judge and a rotating seat for Top Chef alum to come in. Because I think we really enjoyed those. I loved that in Portland, right? That we had Amar and Kristen and Brooke all coming back and having that dynamic of of kind of Top Chef alum versus contestant and, and the bonds they build coming through. That was super fun. And they probably could have been creative and found a way to do that while not put, I mean, and while, and like got a different route. But again, Kristen will be, I think will be okay eventually. Well, it, she will. Okay. So the one, now we're just basically brainstorming other routes they yeah. could have gone. So have you, another show that comes to mind is, have you seen Is It Cake? No, I know. I understand the concept of is it cake? <laughs> yeah, I uh, it, uh, the name uh, kind of spells it out, doesn't it? But the host for that show is Mikey Day of SNL fame. Are you familiar with <laughs> him? No, it, you don't need to be. But I basically, know. he is just comedy, right? Like he's up there and he's just bringing like know. he's just bringing like comedy to the table. Now that's not the right tone for this show. However, I do think they could have gone around where they went with someone like that who maybe has a comedy background or, you know, let's, this is not the right person because he's pretty much canceled, but like an Aziz Ansari, right. Or Eric Wareheim or someone like that. Right. And Eric Wareheim would have been interesting. Yeah. And he's really plugged in into the food world. That's why. Yeah. You, he, you bring someone like that on and there's no expectation that they will ever be at the judges table. If anything, they can act as a bit of a bridge between the contestants and the judges. Because one thing that we've heard in the past about Top Chef is that contestants have virtually no uh, contact with the judges throughout the entire time. Even Padma as the host, they really only saw her during the challenges. And that differs from other reality shows like The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, for example, where you have host Jesse Palmer, who is the voice for the audience, but also is sort of a resource and like a guardian angel, if you will, for the mm-hmm. contestants. And it also creates these like situations of them opening up to Jesse and you sort of getting a new side to them. That could have been interesting, man. If you had like an Eric Wareheim being their sort of like, quote unquote, guardian angel, passenger along for the journey slash host who they can sort of like also get to know throughout the course of the show. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And again, it would be a different show, but as long as that host doesn't have uh, judging power, right? Because that's the key thing. One of the reasons they hit, keep it church, uh, church and state is yeah. so it doesn't influence. But I think it would have been possible. Great British Bake Off, I think, has something similar. They have like kind of comedic and like different kind of hosts come through. Uh, and they and they serve as kind of like a, a different sort of flavor than the judges, right? Exactly. Um, again, like so, ba- so basically there was like, there was a moment where the door was open for them to go a bunch of di- different directions and you know, if we ever have Danine back, it would be really interesting to ask if they thought about going these different directions or how, how broad was the brainstorming or were they or were they like, no, here's our formula. Let's find someone who can not, she's not going to be Padma tomorrow, but she can like 
basically feel like she's it's a similar silhouette, so to speak, in terms of tone and style and cachet and can grow into the role. Look, considering that they were today nominated for four Emmys, I can <laughs> understand why maybe their inclination was not to fix it too much because it certainly ain't broke. Um, yeah. But yeah, man. Anyways, let's talk a little bit about the setting. Yes. Wisconsin. So a little bit about Wisconsin. It's a state in the United States. No. Wisconsin, <laughs> it will be the first Midwestern season they've done since season four back in 2008 when they went to Chicago. Right. Uh, that was an epic season in which some Top Chef celebrities really competed for the first time. I'm talking about Richard Blaze, Antonio Lafazo, Dale Taldi, uh, Spike Mendelson, and of course the champion Stephanie Izzard of Girl in the Goat fame, which we know very well here in Los Angeles. Um, the finals that season were in Puerto Rico, and since 2008, they haven't been back to the Midwest. How do you feel about Wisconsin? I, I think I'm excited. I mean, I'm excited to go back to the Midwest. I'm having a big Chicago moment now, as you know, and as we've discussed on this podcast, I'm into the Midwest. I don't think about Wisconsin very much. <laughs> and, Sorry, and, 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 that's, and literally when they announced London, you'll remember you being like, dude, we have so many more places to go in the US. I prefer we went to the US. Of course, they crushed it with the London choice and World All-Stars and all that. But I'm, I'm, I think I'm excited. I like it when they go to places I'm not familiar with and like kind of show the landscape. I w- recently watched Top Chef Kentucky again, right? And like just a state that I don't think about very much and don't know much about what's going on. And it's cool when they go and check it out. Wisconsin as like an idea doesn't, again, it's a world away from London or any, or, or Chicago even, right? Just in terms of the vibe and like the intensity of the setting and, and the feeling. But I know very little about the cuisine up there. I I thought they might have gone more Mountain West, like a, hmm. like a Montana or a Wyoming, but they did just do Portland, which is sort of, I mean, Pacific North, it's sort of close. So it makes sense to me. I'm excited. I'm happy to be back in the U.S. I'm happy to learn more about Milwaukee. Um, it should be good. I think you bring up a super important point, which is Top Chef Kentucky. I think that was one of the better seasons in recent memory. And mm-hmm. I think it's because it was such a unique and kind of off the beaten path setting compared to a lot of the big cities that they typically have it in. Yeah, And that's one of the things that makes Top Chef really special is – it's technically the same show every single time, but each season feels so unique because of the setting. I think that's one thing we lamented with Houston is it didn't have a really strong sense of place. When, that's at, right. At least the way they shot it, right? They tried to do some things with like barbecue and um, NASA and shit like that. But for the most part, that season felt could have happened anywhere, right? Yeah, that's right. It felt unmoored. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I remember that, especially coming from Portland, where I thought they did a really good job. And then, like, I even watched uh, New Orleans recently, and Top Chef usually does a really, I mean, New Orleans was, like, really heavy, like, they even changed the color scheme of the show for New Orleans. It was, like, really set in. I think you're exactly right. So it's less about where it is and more about how well the team at Top Chef integrates the setting into challenges and into the experience contestants are having. And then part two is really going to be the contestants, right? The contestants are... I think 80% of what makes, at least 80% of what makes Top Chef what it is, if not more, because their dynamics, their skill set, their personalities, I think will really drive it. So we'll see then. As long as Buddha doesn't come back for a third time, I'll be happy. <laughs> I was going to say, it'd be cool if they had the champ, like the champion like of Top Chef wins. They announced Top Chef and they're like, 
well but they're like jk first you have to beat buddha like an iron <laughs> chef thing like buddha comes out like darth vader and like gets to gets to deny them their crown uh because he's so fucking terrifying he he's a little i mean look i love buddha made me top chef fantasy champion this year he's kind of like a darth vader figure for the for the world of top chef unbeatable he is he is he certainly is and you know he would do it because he's such a Top Chef super fan. I think he's probably fallen into a deep depression knowing that he's not going to be able to go back. You want me to make more Star Wars references on this show? Do you appreciate that? As Knowing how big of a fan you are, should I do more? If you could just li- only do basketball, succession, and Star <laughs> Wars references from now on, that would be ideal for all listeners. Great. There uh, you go. What challenges do you think we can pretty much guarantee? I mean – Look, there's going to be cheese. Cheese will be there, right? I think there'll be a Green Bay Packers challenge. And and one of the two, it's Milwaukee and there's, and Madison, right? Yeah. There might be a a, a University of Wisconsin one, right? There's like the easy, like, oh, let's go serve like 200 students. Let's go serve, you know, let's do like a tournament style thing at Packers State, at Lambeau Field or whatever. Um, Let's do some cheese shit. I bet the cheese and the Lambeau Field one go together. Otherwise, I don't, I mean, ooh, maybe like fishing? Because I think I don't oh, know. Do they fish in Wisconsin? I don't, I don't even know, man. <laughs> I mean, does uh, did the did the Great Lakes grace Wisconsin? I think I think that yeah, they. I, I'm pretty sure they do. <laughs> this is why God, this my is geography bad. shit going to go. God yeah. damn it! This Wisconsin. isn't the LA geography <laughs> podcast, okay? So we're not being expected. They do, they do. like near, near the north end. Okay. Um, oh yeah, and and yeah, yeah, no, they're 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 there. They're by they're by a Great Lake. Okay, they touch, uh, they touch. Okay, they touch. They so touch. They touch. They touch. Those are some good chats. So I recently uh, watched uh, season one of Taste the Nation with Podman. She actually goes to Milwaukee for one of the uh, episodes, and there's a massive oh. German population there, and hmm. um, a lot of talk of sausages and beer and stuff like that. So I, I bet you that's going to come into play at some point, and and also to. D- double click on one of the things you said i don't think it's just going to be cheese i think cheese curds are going to make a, a heavy appearance um sure. knowing that they're kind of like the, the state food of wisconsin i also think there's probably going to be some spotlight of an immigrant culture you had no idea was super large in milwaukee right. um, that seems to always be a be something that happens on top chef and then finally i could see them doing a bit of like a subverting expectations and because I kind of associate, and I think a lot of people associate Wisconsin with a lot of cheese, dairy, meat, and potatoes, highlighting the like farmers of Wisconsin and like doing some sort of like, you know, agriculture, like vegetable forward challenge as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that all sounds reasonable. Like, pretty standard Top Chef fare. I, I do hope they like, you know, the, the, I'm sure they'll like spin it off and like spin it out, make it more creative and you know, um, and build on that. But that all sounds like the key thematically for a state like Wisconsin, the, the key like areas they'd go, they'd go for, for a top chef season. Uh, I'm with it. I'm ready for it, man. I'm curious to see where the finale will be this year. Um, looking forward to that as well. Did they announce it? I don't think they did. Um, I think that's kind of a surprise. Uh, but when they had it in Chicago, the finale was in Puerto Rico. Not that that's any indication of where it'll be this time. Uh, but it did get me thinking. There should be a Top Chef Puerto Rico at some point. Yeah, it, it's it's part of the U.S., right? It's a territory, right? Hey, it counts. Um, no, yeah, I, I'm psyched. I'm I'm ex- I'm also particularly excited because I feel like between Houston and uh, like season 19 and season 20, essentially, that there was a big gap 
maybe I was just like, I don't know why. Maybe I just like wasn't paying attention. But it seems like the Top Chef news is coming fast. I yeah. know we're probably not going to get the new season until, you know, you know, about similar time, like spring next year. Uh, but I'm excited to like uh, that they're announcing this stuff and rel- like relatively steadily. And we're going to get like, um, yeah, get as much more Top Chef as soon as possible. Well, Godspeed to the whole team at Top Chef and to Kristen on her on her virgin voyage around the Top Chef uh, the Titanic. Hopefully not Titanic. Uh, <laughs> did you see that the Bear scored 13 Emmy nominations today? I didn't. I'm not surprised. The Emmy, like I, I have a whole, as you, as you, my friend, know, uh, I follow entertainment, pop culture news a lot. And the Emmys are just a weird award show. They're a weird show. <laughs> they, they they have like way too many categories. People like I so I'm just I'm, I'm, I will save my rant for the Emmys, but I'm glad that Bear is so recognized, and it makes a ton of sense. Well, let me tell you a little bit about what they got nominated for. So obviously, it's up for outstanding comedy series, which I mean, actually could be debated about whether it's actually a comedy, right? But that's what I'm talking about. Jeremy Allen White, Iowa Beery, and Evan Moss Backrack were all uh, all nominated for uh for acting awards additionally john bernthal and oliver platt were nominated for outstanding guest actors that feels a little bit uh belittling of the role oliver platt has on the show compared to john bernthal does it not yeah no it is and it's one of those things again where they're trying to just like the show and the studio get to decide where they submit their people and they're going to submit them in places they think they're most likely to get a nomination. So taking it's kind of, so to me, it's less like, Oh, the Emmys are, are uh, like uh, minimizing the role of Oliver Platt or Bernthal and more like, Oh, the studios gaming the system because these guys have an oversized role. That's more than just a guest, but makes them more likely. They're more likely to get a nomination and guest and guest actor than they are in supporting actor. So, who would you give it to between uh, Bernthal and Platt? Platt. Platt. What she get there? Fair. And finally, my last quiz question for you today is the Bear is actually third when it comes to the most Emmy nominations picked up at once. Can you name the two shows that have picked up more Emmy nominations in one go? This year or in history? In history. Ooh. Uh, I'm going to bet Game of Thrones was up there. Do you have it in front of you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is Game of Thrones correct? I guess the other one. Okay. Game of Thrones and uh... <sighs> Wait, actually, think... actually, I should I should caveat this. It's the third most nominated comedy series. So you're oh, you're, oh I see. You're at it. a disadvantage to begin with. Got it, got it, got it. Well, com- but even the comedy series, as we've seen with the bear, is like kind of an off thing. Uh what the office might have been in there? Parks and Rec might have been in there. Um, oh, Thirty Rock. That means love fucking Thirty Rock. No, you're, you're shaking your head. I, th- I think you're going to be shocked, bro. Okay, so it's behind Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which ah, got gross. fourteen, <laughs> fourteen nominations, what? and for record breaking, twenty one number of nominations is Ted Lasso. Oh wow. I, I probably knew that at one point. 21. Jesus 21. Christ. 
I didn't even know there uh, were 21 awards to win within the comedy section. Yeah, that, that's what I'm trying, I'm trying to think of shows that have like a big ensemble cast because maybe they just like pack the category. Like, for example, I know on the like best supporting actor on the drama side, it's all Succession of White Lotus people. It's like seven nominations, all Succession of White Lotus. So I was going my head going, who has like the most actors and, and like, you know, it's a high rated show. But damn, Maisel and Ted Lasso. <laughs> Father Saul, any final th- thoughts you want to leave our listeners with, either on Wisconsin, Kristen Kish, or The Bear? Um, I'm excited for Top Chef Fantasy next year. I don't know. I know Christian being in Kristen and be, being with Kristen and being in Wisconsin doesn't change much of anything, but bringing in other, our other friends and making it a little bit more competitive will be a lot of fun. I think it's going to be great. I'm just going to say that. I think it's going to, I think, I think you got Tom holding it down. You got Donine and the folks at Magical Elves knowing what knowing what to do. I think it's still going to be a great show. That makes one of us that is excited for next Fantasy Top Chef. I still owe you your <laughs> prize, which is uh, tasting menu at Holbosch, but I'm excited to take you. Can't wait. I am so excited to be joined today by the chef and partner of Highly Likely, one of my favorite all-day cafes in all of Los Angeles. It's Chef Kat Turner. How are you doing today, Chef? Hi, Luca. I'm so good. Thank you for having me on. How's uh, how's your day going? We're recording this shortly after the 4th of July. Did you have a good holiday? Yeah, it was great. I worked um, worked in the earlier part of the day and then went to three different 4th of July parties just to, you know, work hard, play hard kind of life, right? <laughs> oh, hell yeah. What, what makes for a good 4th of July party in your eyes? Um, Good food. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, obviously really good food. Um, I was lucky my, uh, every party that I went to, like, you know, I went to my friend's mom's house and like, she's a great cook and my friend made homemade ice cream. And then the second location, my friends are also amazing cooks and they had great snacks and great wine. And then third location we went to is definitely more of like a, a bit of like a a chef hang Mm -hmm. Um, and like Molly Baz was there and Sophia Rowe and just like cooking in the kitchen together and making margaritas. And, you know, that's, that's always my favorite. If I get to hang out with other chefs, especially like my, my lady crew, it's always, always makes for a good party. What was your favorite bite that you consumed there? Um, uh, Molly made really great fish tacos that were just great kind of off the cuff. Um, Sophia made a really excellent, um, like, almost like an elote style um, corn dish, but everything was just kind of like in the moment. This feels like it could be its own TV show. Just all of you amazing <laughs> shows having their own 4th of July party. That's a show I would definitely tune into. Yeah, it, it was good. It's a, it's a good, it's a good time. Yeah. Except for they probably turn into a competition show and pit you against each other to see who brought the best, like, you know, uh, side and salad or something. So no more competition shows. <laughs> no, well, we're going to get there, actually. We're going to get there. Um, but hey, what are, your, what are your LA stomping grounds? Obviously, Highly Likely is in West Adams, and you're opening a new location, which we're going to talk about in, uh, in my neck of the woods, Highland Park. But uh, where, where, where are you hanging out when you're not at the locations? You know, I've lived in LA for close to 23 years. Um, and you know, in that time I've been all over. I lived in Silver Lake for a long time. I, you know, I, I have friends, you know, all over the city. It kind of depends on who I'm dating, you know, I was dating a guy in the mm-hmm. Valley and then I was with a guy in Venice and, you know, so I, 
I tend to kind of really traverse the entire the entire city. So I've got, you know, I've kind of got my favorite spots in every neighborhood. I live in Koreatown, um, which I feel really lucky about just even thinking about all the different places I can go to from, you know, great Korean barbecue to like, here's looking at you. My friend just opened an amazing um, wine uh, bar there called Nighttime, um, you know, Normandy Club and atrium and just all the kind of like really cool spots that that are so close to me I, oh a classic i love koreatown i used to live right up the street from uh the brass monkey karaoke bar are uh, you familiar? of course karaoke is like i actually i'm i have a dream of opening a karaoke bar that's kind of something i've been like working on so i've had many nights at the brass monkey ever since i moved to la 20 20 years probably i've been going to the brass monkey I mean, it is truly one of the most slept on spots in all of Los Angeles. It's my favorite, probably my favorite bar and karaoke is definitely my religion. My wife and I actually opted to have karaoke instead of dancing at our wedding. So uh, that's how much we like it. That's amazing. Okay. Well then we need to, we need to talk after about my karaoke bar that, that I'm going to open. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I didn't even know karaoke consultant was a potential career, but you know, I'm definitely open to it. hundred uh, percent. What's your song? I mean, what isn't my song? You know, uh, I think, uh, I think honestly, I, I gravitate towards, uh, crowd pleasers. Right. So, you know, good, like, um, uptown funk situation by Bruno Mars or something like that. Something that has a good, uh, like sing along, uh, aspect to it as well. So yeah. depends on the night. Totally. How about you? What do you go for? Um, I love classic rock. Um, so like some of my favorites, I love doing whole lot of love by Led Zeppelin. I like a little Jefferson airplane. Um, I like to like close out a night with total eclipse of the heart, you know, that kind of vibe. That is, that's a vibe right there. Big vibe. Uh, well, Koreatown can't get enough of it. So you said you've been in LA for 23 years, so you're a bonafide Angelino, but where, where did you come from to LA? Um, I grew up in a really small town in Wisconsin mm -hmm. and um, went to Milwaukee for college. And when I was done um, with that, I moved to Santa Barbara. I lived there for a little bit. I went to a school for photography called Brooks, um, left Brooks, moved to L.A. when I was 21 and uh, attended Art Center in Pasadena. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's kind of what brought me to L.A. So you came to be an artist, is that right? Yeah, I was doing photography. Uh, I ended up doing photography and advertising at Art Center, but um, once I left uh, Art Center, I actually got headhunted as a as an actress, and so then I was working as a as an actress. Wow! So doing the whole LA thing. I did the whole LA thing. Like my first, my first like job. Uh, in LA was uh, working as a go-go dancer in um, nightclubs. So I was a go-go dancer. I did burlesque. I was an actress and, you know. <laughs> the, full, the full LA story. Uh, whole... What kind of stuff did you act in? Um, I did some independent films, um, but probably the two of the best projects that I got a chance to work on. Um, one is called All About Evil, which is an amazing horror film um, that my friend Josh Grinnell directed and my friend Darren produced, um, that I got to work with Natasha Leone. Um, oh, she played, no 
Yeah, she played the lead. And then um, Cassandra Peterson, who is the actress who played Elvira, played the mom. Mink Stoll from um, John Waters Films was in it as well. So it had this kind of like amazing cast. And um, and I got to be a scream queen and I got to die on camera. It was amazing. Natasha Leon murdered me. It was fun. Wow. <laughs> so you, you, you were a go-go dancer, burlesque. Actress, yeah. you, got, you got murdered by Natasha Leone. So really, you've you've lived a million different LA lives. And and I got to also be in a David Lynch film, which is my all-time kind of probably famous favorite thing I've ever been able to be involved in. That's awesome. So uh, yeah, so you know, definitely quite the range of experiences there. Uh, were you always into food, or was that something that came to you along the journey? Yeah, I I always loved food. In fact, when I was younger and, you know, through junior high and high school, I was really into cooking and, um, you know, learning about chefs. And when it came time to choose a path for college, it was like, you know, am I going to go to culinary school or am I going to go to school for theater? Um, my my undergrad degree is in, is in theater. And I ended up going for theater. And so it was kind of always like, you know, simmering so to speak um but it wasn't until uh, 2008 i I actually was working part-time at a friend's restaurant and uh learned that i i really did love to cook and the writer's strike happened um Mm -hmm. which is finally because we're in one again right now and nobody was working and um i just kind of realized like you know i should maybe go and pursue this as a career what kind of stuff got you into cooking in the first place? Like when you were in junior high cooking, were there any like, you know, uh, recipes or family members maybe that got you into it? Uh, or was it, yeah. you know, my, um, my parents are both very good, very good home cooks. Um, my dad didn't cook all that often, but when he did, he had a few absolute bangers that he, that mm-hmm. he put out, um, still famous for his spaghetti sauce. Um, my mom, excellent, excellent cook. And, she collected cookbooks. I was actually just home recently and it's so nice. I always love going and like kind of, you know, thumbing through all the, the cookbooks, but she had like cookbooks from around the world. And so just even growing up, um, you know, in kind of such a rural area, there's this whole world that was open to me through um, all the cookbooks on the shelves. And so it was like travel and food. And I always love um, any any opportunity to, to create, you know, any medium, you know, whether if it's performance or it's sculpture, it's painting or it's food, it's it kind of all satisfies that urge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 2008 happens, the writer strike happens and culinary school feels like a natural next step for you. How was that experience? Was it, uh, was it, you know, intense culinary school experience or was it kind of, you know, enjoyable learning, learning to do something you love type thing? I loved it. It was, it was really, um, it was really, really great. I moved to New York. I went to a school called the natural gourmet, um, which is in Manhattan. Um, it's a, you know, four month program, but pretty intense, like, you know, five days a week. And it just, you know, it was easy for me in the sense that I just loved every minute of it. So never really felt like hard work. Um, and then I worked at Blue Hill for four months. I did my externship for four months um, at the Blue Hill in the city. 
and just did as much extracurricular stuff as I possibly could. I worked at the James Beard House. I volunteered there like, you know, weekly, as many dinners as I could, like as many kind of stages, as many things that I could do. I was already 30 when I went to culinary school. So, mm-hmm. you know, I knew that I wanted to be serious about it. And I also knew that I did not want to work in a restaurant, which was kind of funny now in hindsight, but um, I, I really had the intention of being a private chef. At the age that I was at, I just didn't see myself working on a line. You know, mm-hmm. it just didn't appeal to me. Um, and for, you know, the fact that I lived in LA and I was pretty well connected from like working clubs and just kind of being in the mix already for quite a while that I thought, oh, I can get back to LA and, you know, I'll be a private chef or a band or actor or something and, you know, travel around the world. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty sweet gig. I can see why you were attracted to that. Yeah, it was great. I loved doing it. I did it for like 10 years. There's a bit of a d- debate about culinary school amongst those who are interested in getting in the food world about whether it's worth going to, whether it's not. What's your opinion about that? I think if you're young and you know that you want to work in restaurants and be a chef and eventually have your own place one day, I think it's okay to, you know, start out finding restaurants that you want and and working your way up that way. I don't think that you necessarily need culinary school, but I do think that it takes a good, you know, five years before you're really kind of know what you're doing, you know, really running a a show. So it's like when you're hiring someone at Highly Likely, culinary school might not be a prerequisite, but you want to see that they've got some sort of experience under their belt. So they could have five, six years under their belt and not have culinary school. And you would think that, yeah, totally fine. Most of the people I hire don't go to culinary school. Like if, if I see culinary school or, um, Cheesecake Factory on a resume, like I'm probably going to go with the person that worked at Cheesecake Factory. Yeah. Hey, they've got a, they got a massive menu. So if they can, you know. Exactly. Like it. that's such a system. I'm like, Ooh, Cheesecake Factory. That's like, Ooh, they worked there for four years. Like amazing. <laughs> Good to know. Uh, yeah. So folks, if you're listening and debating whether to work at the Cheesecake yeah. Factory, go to culinary school, here's your answer. You know, and it depends on what you you know, what kind of output you want. Like I, like highly likely is, you know, we're fast, casual, you know, it's not fine dining. It's not tweezer food. Like what we're doing is so like neighborhoody. Um, you know, I don't, I don't need someone coming in, you know, from the CIA necessarily, you know? Yeah. yeah. You, you say that. Someone, go to Providence, you know? Yeah, totally. If you want tweezers, go to Providence. That's yeah. We can make a t-shirt about that for sure. And you say that about highly likely, but I think it is definitely elevated neighborhood food. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But, um, but culinary school is great also. Like, I mean, no shade on culinary school. I think there is something important about, I'm really glad that I did higher education. I'm glad that I went to college. It like gave me an opportunity to kind of like learn about myself and, you know, gave me a sense of discipline. Anything that gives you discipline, I think is, yeah. is worth it. And working in a restaurant and being really serious about it is going to give you discipline, like going to attending school and being serious about it, that'll give you discipline too. So, but nothing can, culinary school can never replace the, the practical experience that you'll get actually working in a restaurant. I was going to ask, is there a lesson that you took from culinary school that you still take with you today? 
and would you say that's discipline perhaps? Um, I think discipline, but also like curiosity, you know, you have an opportunity in school, in school to kind of learn so many different things and to ask so many questions. Whereas once you actually get into a restaurant setting, it's like, it's very hard to, I think, have creative input, um, until, you know, you're working closely with the chef. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Depending on the restaurant, you know what I mean? But if you're like, you know, kind of just starting out and you want to change things or, you know, do things your own way. It's, it's not really super welcomed in a, in a restaurant where consistency and, and a, you know, singular vision is kind of, um, you know, what's going on. But that is kind of the job description as being a private chef a lot of the time, which could, is that's one of the things that attracted you to that world. What, 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 the ability to sort of be curious and creative and what you were putting out and not having to live by a system that was already in place. It depends on the client, you know? I mean, I've had some clients who really do want to have, um, you know, who, who love creativity and want things to be kind of like fresh and creative and, you know, more experimentation. And then you have some clients that are like, this is what I want to eat. This is what time I want to eat it, you know? And this is, this is it, you know, and you kind of like have to work in a much smaller box. So, you know, that's a, it's a bit of a crapshoot with private chef work and clients. What was one of your favorite assignments as a private chef? Oh my God. I mean, I worked, I worked for, I toured with a band. And so just being able to, you know, tour with a band and, you know, go from city to city and like every venue, you never knew, like sometimes they'd have a a kitchen that you cook in. I had like a road kit. Sometimes I'd set up a kitchen on a folding table. Um, You know, so kind of the, you know, it's a bit like fast and loose. You land, you have a driver, they take you to the grocery store, you do all your stuff, you're setting up, you're running around. Like it's definitely, um, it's a bit wild and on the go. And I, and I loved that. That was my first job working with um, Billy Corgan from Smashing Pumpkins. Oh, and, no yeah. Getting to see the show like night after night for a band that I actually really loved. And, you know, it, it was, it was fun. It had that kind of like almost famous quality to it. Again, something that sounds like it could be a reality show, the chef <laughs> for a band on a tour, having to deal with like, God knows what at each stop. Were there any moments where you're, where you were like, I don't know how I'm going to pull off this meal on this particular night? my god yeah i mean like there were so many things that happened like my my foot got run over one time by one of the drivers i had and like we were in singapore and the power there was like a problem with the power i plugged something into like a power outlet that was just way too crazy and um like like a 110 into like a 240 thing i don't even know how it happened there was like no converter because you know the power is different in different countries Anyway, so like my oven, I had a little oven that blew up and like trying to make dinner without an oven and, you know, yeah, there was always crazy stuff. I accidentally had a knife in my bag in Singapore that I took through two x-rays and got it onto the plane and was like, look at my bag and I had a huge chef knife in my bag on the plane, you know, I don't know, cooking in Tokyo, like trying to like go grocery shopping in different cities and, you know, landing in moscow or taipei and like walking into hotel kitchens i cooked a lot in hotel kitchens Mm -hmm. and you know like being in a kitchen where like people don't really speak english and um you know there's not a lot of like young american women and 
in, you know, some of those like old school hotels and, um, you know, just kind of having to really like go with it and realize that food unto itself is its own language and cooking equipment is pretty much the same everywhere in the world. And, you know, just kind of learn how to, how to speak. Was the, was, were the bands you worked with cool about like experimenting? Like what, what was the vibe where did they want to try cuisines that were sort of like of the places you were going to, or did, or was it one of the things where they wanted something that they were familiar with when they familiar. were like, it, yeah. you know, I think for the people that I worked for, there's such a high intensity to their job that food is really fuel. That was really my experience. Most of the, most of the people that I worked with, um, you know, they're at such a high caliber that the food is a fuel. You want it to be consistent, like night after night after night of performance, um, or filming or whatever it is, you need to have as much consistency in an inconsistent schedule. That makes sense. I think every time I've heard of touring, it's really described almost as like an athletic pursuit mm -hmm. like you've got to be taking care of your body your mind so kind of like an athlete needs consistent fuel it would make sense that a musician doing that needs the same thing totally and like yeah. their voice you know like eating certain foods you know are better or worse or you know you kind of it's like tuning up a hot rod so that sounds like a pretty sweet gig at what point did you decide to make the pivot from private chef life to going into this crazy restaurant world after a number of years of doing this, I started to get really lonely. Mm -hmm. um, there is a bit of an isolation factor um, that goes into working as a private chef. And I felt like the career was like pretty myopic. I was only cooking for like really small groups of people, oftentimes just one or two people. And I wanted to learn how to go bigger. And there's an event group, um, like a conference called Summit that I've been a part of and worked with, and they do these big flagship events every year. And it's kind of like TED Talk meets Burning Man. And they were doing what was called um, Summit at Sea, where they took over a Norwegian cruise, cruise ship that I think had, you know, capacity of like 4,000 people. And I was friends with the organizers because uh, I had attended one of these events a few years before, and it was like one of the most insane events I'd ever been to. And I was like, one of these days, I'm going to figure out how they do this. And so I emailed them. I said, you know, do you guys need help on the on the boat? <laughs> and they were like, do we ever? <laughs> so they brought me on for Summit at Sea. This was in 2016. Donald Trump got elected president the day before we set sail. It was a very <laughs> interesting cruise. We basically took over every dining aspect of the ship from juice bars to snack bars to like their fine dining restaurants, basically stripped everything out of them and put in like different chefs um, at each outlet. And so it was kind of like ma managing how do you cook food for thousands of people and running the crews on the ship and you know, like walking into a room full of like chefs on a, on a cruise ship and going, who knows how to make quinoa? You know, <laughs> one guy raises his hand. I'm like, that's all you're doing for the next four days is making quinoa for me. Like who, who do you guys have juicers, you know, juicing 500 pounds of beets? It's like, you know, it was really wild. Building your own motley crew. Uh, I, I, I yeah. would have assumed that the, uh, 
constraints of being on a ship had more to do with raw materials than with staff, but that actually makes sense too. You know, you've got a crew of people that are used to doing the same thing over and over and over, and you come in for four days and like completely flip their whole dining program upside down. It's It was pretty wild. But so I wanted to cook for more people. I started working for Summit um, and then worked with them on their events for a couple of years. They had a mountain in Utah that they um, ran their events with, um, smaller events when they weren't doing like the big flagship events. Um, so I went out, worked on this mountain in Utah, um, cooked really fun food for really fun people for a season. And that's where I met my business partner, Carrie Mosier, who um, asked me if I wanted to be the chef of Highly Likely. And oh, I said so no. <laughs> you said no? I did. I said no at first. And so talk me through that. So the concept for Highly Likely was already there. Did they, had they already secured real estate and everything? Yep. They. Um, so Carrie and uh, my other partners, Chelsea and Alex, um, they uh, they already had the property and they had the name and they knew they wanted it to be a coffee shop. It was really just it was just going to be a coffee shop that served a little bit of food and they needed a chef. And Carrie met me on top of this mountain and he was like, hey, like, do you do you live here? Or do you live in LA? And I'm like, I actually live in LA, but I'm here for the season. Oh, you should, you should come and talk to us. You know, we need a chef. You should be the chef for our new cafe. And I really, at that point did not have any, what I didn't, you know, my perception of myself was that I didn't have enough restaurant experience mm-hmm. because, you know, I had four months at Blue Hill and then I went straight into being a private chef and, doing events and things like that. Um, in one regard, I probably have been in more kitchens than most chefs have in their life and seen more operations and like high-end um, establishments. So I do have a good idea of like systems and whatnot, but like the consistent like day in, day out, like, you know, I didn't know how to do any of it. And so I felt like I don't actually know how to do this. So I don't think I'm the right person for this job. And he said, no, my, my Scorpio rising is telling me you're the right chef for the job. Like, will you at least come and meet with us and have a look at the deck and see the property and whatnot? And so I said, okay. And um, I came back to LA and got to know, you know, Chelsea and Alex got to know Carrie better and saw the location. And I was like, oh, this is, this is really cool. And Carrie's family started Cafe Gratitude and Gracias Madre. He's mm-hmm. opened like 15 restaurants and he's like, look, it's not that hard. He goes, if you can cook brunch for 200 people on top of a mountain, you know, in a remote part of Utah, you can run a restaurant in LA. Was that what helped you override the no you felt inside of you mm-hmm. or the self-doubt? Yeah, totally. Just just having like one person who, who says, hey, I believe in you and I'm going to help you. And it's like, it's like, like, okay, let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. One person that believes in you can make a massive difference. And when you decided to say yes, how much of the actual menu and idea behind the food was already set? And how much did you have a, have a chance to go in there and actually offer your perspective? None, None of, of it. it. I did. I, that, the menu from top to bottom is entirely mine. 
So their concept was what all day cafe, pretty pretty vague. It, like yeah, it, good. it was like, hi, here's your box. It's all day cafe. Like <laughs> put stuff in there. <laughs> That's about as broad as a canvas as you can yeah. get. How did you go about narrowing it down? Yeah, it's interesting. I you know I looked at. I really took the neighborhood into consideration, looked into the history of West Adams, um, you know, and obviously my own culinary perspective, which continues to evolve. But at that time, it was really like defined by these two kind of uh, facets of my life, which were that, you know, I'm from Wisconsin. I'm from this small town, comfort food and familiarity and um you know, nothing, nothing too pretentious. Like, you know, it, that's kind of the foundation, you know, very Midwestern. Mm -hmm. um, and then traveling for 10 years all over the world as a private chef and picking up like all these like little techniques and flavors and falling in love with, you know, different cuisines and, you know, learning from the chefs that I got to work with in, you know, places like Morocco and Tokyo and Osaka and Korea, you know, all over. And, kind of weaving those together where, you know, the food has to be approachable, but it also has to leave you with this feeling that you're experiencing something kind of new and fresh and, you know, seeing it through a, a kind of new lens. That's really interesting. I mean, there are a number of things you just brought up that I'd love to dig deeper on. So for example, you mentioned that you looked into the history of the neighborhood, West Adams, which remind me, what year did, did Highly Likely open? Uh, we opened in uh, 2018. 2018. So West Adams was ex already experiencing, you know, a, a, a bit of a shift in terms of the face of, of the neighborhood, right? So uh, yeah. highly likely was becoming a part of this. What about the history of the neighborhood stuck out to you in terms of, you know, something that you want to reflect in your in your menu and the, the what highly likely stood for? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, it's it's a very family centric neighborhood, mm -hmm. um, a lot of single family homes. And there is a history of, um, there's a Creole component to West Adams. There is a Japanese component to West Adams. Um, it's a historically black neighborhood. Um, and, you know, I think without like pandering to the community, you know, ways to kind of touch on, um, some food like like the fried fish sandwich for me is kind mm -hmm. of like that kind of encapsulates um how i wanted to create a sandwich that kind of gave a bit of history to it and um and also kind of honored my own past um i grew up like i said in wisconsin i spent a lot of time in florida um i used to go fishing with my dad all the time and we'd go fishing often in florida with this guide his name is jimmy and when you'd get off the boat he'd be filleting the fish and i remember one time this tourist walked up to him and said what's the best way to cook a fish and he very he's very genteel and he turned around and he said well ma'am now there are two ways to cook a fish you can fry it or you can fuck it up <laughs> and that like, has always stuck with me and so i was like i love fried fish um but also the idea of having a po boy um you know, and then giving it these kind of little Japanese touches where it's, you know, a slaw with yuzu and a Japanese milk bun that's like super fluffy and tender. And, um, you know, there's a great um, fried fish place down the street from us 
that we really love. Um, so, you know, there's Mel's Fish Shack. So, you know, kind of a little nod. It's the, for folks who don't know, the name is very punny. It's the fish don't have finger sandwich, right? Yeah. Well, my partner, Alex, is English. And he was like, we have to have a fish finger sandwich. <laughs> fish don't have fingers. It's such a brilliant point that it's one of those things that I never even thought of until I read the item on your menu. It's one of those mind-blowing moments. Like today I heard someone say that, and this is not fact check, so I don't know if it's true at all, but that sand is called sand because it's between the sea and the land. Oh, I mean, it works for me. Yeah. I don't need to know if it's factual. It's just always going to be stuck in my head. But it's one of those like, you know, turn the lights on moments and the fish don't have finger sandwich was one of those one of those moments for me. Um, But it's a fantastic sandwich. And I absolutely hear what you're saying. It's got like that comfort element of it being something that immediately when you're eating it, you recognize everyone's had a fried fish sandwich before, um, but it is executed to such a high high degree of quality, in my opinion, that you know you can tell immediately you're getting excellent food. Plus, there are those Japanese elements. It's a there's a there's a sauce and a slaw. Is that right? Yeah. Well, the fish is marinated in koji, mm. um, and then it gets like it actually. I dip it in a tempura batter, and then I also throw it in panko, and then fry the fish, and then there's a tartar sauce that we make with our pickles we made pickles in house and it's got yuzu kosho and kewpie mayonnaise in it and then the slaw has got our yuzu dressing and toasted sesame seeds yeah it's fan it's one of those things where and those are all flavors a lot of people especially in los angeles have had before too like if you've eaten at you know sushi restaurants and whatnot you can place yuzu and whatnot but having those different flavors all in one place it makes your it takes your mind on a journey and makes it feel at home at the same time so I personally really appreciated that sandwich. What are some of your other menu items that kind of tell stories like this? I have a really great um, dish on right now that I worked on with um, one of my chefs, um, my kitchen manager, Christian. Um, I asked him to work on a dish for me and it's a pea bill bowl with chicken pea bill. And he came up with the, the chicken and we put it all together with a tostada and um, you know, using lebna and feta cheese and you know things that aren't he was like feta cheese is going to ruin this dish and i'm like no feta cheese is going to taste great on this dish like don't worry like you know kind of like working with someone who thinks maybe in a more traditional sense and being like look let's work with what we got you know and you know take it and make it you know make it highly likely so um you know getting to now i'm starting to work with my team more you know which is which is really fun and you know hey you know bring me, bring me some dishes. Let's work on them. Let's put them on the menu. Um, I've had a lot of dishes on the menu that, um, I felt really close to. It's kind of fun to make a dish and then take it off and then put a new dish on. And well, it's like what you were saying before about artistic creation, right? It's that same, I've heard it described similarly in terms of when people are making the comparison between art and food. It's, this notion of like being able to conceive of something in your head and then express it and see it become realized in the world. And I mean, food is such a, you know, beautiful medium to do that in. It's fast. Yeah. I mean, the, the creation of it can come so fast. And one of my, um, one of my, my best friends, she's in fashion. Um, her name's Kit, but 
she said something once that really, really stuck with me that I use all the time. And she said, enjoy it, destroy it. And like, that's so food, you know, it's like, you really have an opportunity to create something and then just totally consume it, you know? hundred percent. It's like, the phrase kill your darlings except eat yeah. your darlings yeah yeah, yeah. kill me but yeah kill your babies like when i put a dish on and then i'm like ah let's take it off <laughs> yeah well that's beautiful it's like that in that sort of death something else is born right and that's that's yeah. the beauty of it that's really cool so speaking of something else being born highly likely is opening its second location in highland park new location yeah it's really exciting it's on um avenue 55th and fig um great area of Highland Park. We've got amazing neighbors. We've got um, Homestay, you know, we've got um, uh, Cookbook, um, Lodge Room is right across the street and just some really like fun, fun stuff happening. The Gold Line, which is an awesome bar. Um, So yeah, we're really excited to open up there. We've got a great, great um, build out that we're working on, tons of natural light, big skylights, and then this huge back patio where we're going to have an outdoor bar. So it's kind of like highly likely 2.0. We have full liquor. We're going to have a great, great cocktail menu. Um, We'll have dinner. We'll be open until 11 p.m. Um, We'll have kind of the familiar counter service during the daytime. And then um, in the evening, we're going to switch over to table service and actually do like a real dinner program. No way. So at like 5 p.m., it'll be like, hey, guys, get your laptops out of here. We're doing we're switching over to dinner. Laptops, beat it, nerds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love my laptopers. The thing that's really great about it, it you know, it's a double edged sword because, you know, it takes up a lot of tables. But in West Adams, like people are like, it's packed in there all the time. And I'm like, yeah, because people are on their laptops all day long. But it's great to have a restaurant that's full of people. You want to have a restaurant that's full of people. So, you know, we're kind of always like riding the line of, you know, kind of trying to manage manage that a bit. We'll just be able to like cut it off at four o'clock. Like it's just not going to happen. No laptops at dinner. Exactly. And that's healthy, right? Because Mm -hmm. folks need that sort of like enforced time to uh, unplug and switch off for the day. So you're just giving that to them, right? Like 5 p.m. clock out, guys. It's time time for dinner. Grab a cocktail. Yeah. Oh, that's what I was going to ask. Uh, is there going to be alcohol, liquor yep. license at this new location? Yeah, yeah. Full full liquor, full cocktails. We've got an amazing um, bar manager who's a friend of mine who's we're working on some really, really fun drinks. And I, I am going to have a pina colada machine. That's like very important to me. So. Oh, hell yeah. Nothing like a great pina colada, I think. <laughs> Love a pina colada with a little dark rum soft top. Oof. Yeah. Have you had, have you ever had viche? What's it called? Viche. Viche, no. Right. Okay. So I was in Colombia earlier this year and uh, we did a rum tasting. And I, I thought, I always thought like rum, it's the, the liquor I just get drunk on, right? I never, I'm never going to be able to like, distinguish between different types of rum but clearly mm. this one this one uh rum comes out and it's explained to us as sort of the mezcal of rum mm-hmm. and it's called viche and it's sort of like a younger grassier like rum and it is absolutely phenomenal i'm not sure if it's like legal in america which could be a problem but yeah. um definitely highly recommend getting your hands on some if you're if you're a rum fan and and we recently tried it in a cocktail here at home 
And yeah. uh, it works absolutely perfectly the same way that sort of like subbing out mezcal for uh, tequila does every once in a while. Highly yeah. recommend checking it out. I, yeah, I've had some rums um, recently that really, really changed the way that I think about rum. Um, we actually, we did a tasting last week um, with a, a liquor portfolio and they had a rum that tasted like um, Castel Vitrano olives. Like it had this like, and it's the second time that I've had a rum that was like super briny, like really kind of like vegetal and briny where I was like, oh my God, I have to have this in a dirty martini. Like this is, or just, just a straight martini. Like you can really like taste these incredibly savory notes. And yeah, I mean, we get, you know, you think that, you know, all rum is, you know, kind of the same that you use it for daiquiris and pina coladas, but um there are some great, great rums being produced with totally different expressions. Well, I can't wait to try the pina colada at highly likely after that conversation. Um, in terms of dinner menu, what can mm -hmm. what can we expect that's a little different for that? Um, right now, what I'm working on with the dinner dinner menu is again kind of leaning back into that my midwestern, you know, lineage and thinking of kind of like blue plate special, very neighborhood kind of, you know, bistro-y, um, just some very straightforward, simple items. Um, you know, when you go out to a restaurant where I'm from in Wisconsin, like you would order the chicken and they say, okay, what kind of side do you want? Tonight we have fries, coleslaw, bro our vegetable tonight is broccoli, you know, and you kind of like choose your side to go with your protein. And, and I love that. And I don't really, I haven't experienced that really much in a restaurant in, in LA. So that's kind of one thing I'm playing with. Like if you order a protein, like, you know, pick your side to go with I it. Love them. Also talk about in a city that's like so obsessed with what's seasonal, that seems to be a no-brainer, that those sides should be switching out based on what was good at the farmer's market that week. That absolutely makes total sense. Can we expect to see cheese curds on the menu? <laughs> that's really funny. Um, I just brought like three bags of cheese curds back with me because I was, I was back up a couple of weeks ago. Um Huh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I've done them. I've done them for pop-ups. Um, I'd have to be able to bring in like my cheese from Wisconsin. I don't know. You know, I know you can get cheese curds in California, but I don't Not know if same. I can do that. I don't think yeah. I can do that. If you're able to supply them, I'm sure there's, I mean, you've probably thought of all the fun combinations, but my head is going crazy right now thinking about like a cheese curd play on Casha Pepe and like all these different things you think. <laughs> Oh my God. I'm, I, you know, honestly, I want to get experimenting in the kitchen with just that thought. That's really exciting. I can't. So when is, when is highly likely opening in Highland Park? Um, right now we're targeted for September. Okay. So that's going to be here before we know it. Let's talk about where you like to eat when you're not at highly likely. What are your favorite spots to eat at in Los Angeles right now? Um, let's see. I mean, if I'm on the West side, um, I love, like Kobe's, Crudo e Nudo. Um, I love sitting at the, I love sitting at a bar. That's kind of one of my favorite things. Um, mm -hmm. You interviewed my very dear friend, Karen Palmer. She, she um, was amazing. Yeah. Karen's, Karen's the best, but um, you can often find Karen and I at, uh, at a little establishment called Hillstone or any we of the. About that. Yeah. 
I Hillstone it seems to be like you guys are very much regulars there. If anybody, you guys should get PR dollars, honestly. It's just, you know, it's, it's very, you know, straightforward, basic, but the service is really excellent and they make a great martini and you can just sit at the bar and, you know, get fries and a sandwich. And, you know, it's like excellent service for, you know, comfort food, which I love that, you know, what's the deal with this, uh, crispy chicken sandwich I hear that has cold cheese. Oh, Dings, Dings crispy chicken. Karen loves that sandwich. Um, yeah, that's it's a crispy fried chicken sandwich with a slice of cold. Um, I don't know what cheese it is, Jack maybe, and um, I think a little bit of like shredded lettuce. It's good. I mean, it's consistent. It's exactly the same every single time you go. You know, yeah. and yeah. there's something to be said about that. But you know, there's great places in West Adams that I like to go to. Um, you know, Alta's awesome and. Have you read Chef uh, Corbin's book, by the way, uh, Alta at Alta Adams? You know, I went to the book launch of it, and I've read excerpts of it. I haven't, I haven't read it cover to cover. I have it though, but his story uh, is really, really remarkable. Yeah, I mean, I so I was the opposite of you. I didn't know anything about the story. I had eaten at the restaurant, didn't know anything about the story, and just went in cold to the book. And yeah, just an absolutely incredible inspiring story um yeah so i'm gonna yeah i i you're right all west adams has a, an incredible food scene um and it's just getting more and more exciting all the time have you, so. been, to B, have you been to b taqueria no last oh, year God. i gotta go last year i did this whole thing where i ate at a hundred different taquerias in 365 days as like a personal project and wow. uh it was a it was an absolutely incredible journey but uh, my one of my biggest regrets is that I didn't get to be Taqueria. I hear it's incredible. Oh it's literally like two blocks away from me where I am right now. Yeah, Chef Alex is like, he's so kind. He's such an incredible chef, and it's so perfect. Like, it's just a perfect experience. You know, it's the way that I like. I love like, it feels like I'm just in somebody's backyard. You know, it's like that's really what I crave. I don't go out to a lot of, I don't do a lot of fine dining. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, number one, it's, it's really expensive to go out to eat now. It in LA. Like, it's really crazy. I don't even go out to eat all that often. I mean, and also, you know, I'm, I have a lot of wonderful friends who are chefs or who are in the food industry or who just love to cook. And at this point in my life and people have kids and they have, you know, like different schedules. And I find myself just going over to friends' houses a lot and eating, you know? And like yeah. sitting in a backyard and just drinking wine and, you know, just being really relaxed about it. There's something magical about that. And yeah, the expense of the restaurants right now is through the roof. And there are a lot of pieces you see out there that are like, yes, restaurants are more expensive than ever right now. And here are all the reasons. I mean, it's one of those... It's one of those balances, right? Where you're like, it's so expensive, I can't go. But I also feel bad because it's not necessarily the restaurant's fault all the time, right? Most of the time, it's not, you know? I mean, rents are expensive, you know? Uh, labor is crazy. Like, ingredients are expensive. You want to use good ingredients. Like, I mean, it's it's really, really hard to make a profit. It's really hard. Like, we're not in this to make a bunch of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, already in a what has been famously sort of a low margin business, adding all those extra expenses has just yeah, I can imagine it's it's made things seem really expensive to the diner, but 
how else are you going to even operate? Yeah. But it's exciting. You know, I mean, when I do get to go out to eat in, in LA, um, there are places that are doing such great stuff, like just really fun. Like even, you know, Anna Jack, which it's like wild that, I mean, I love Justin. It's wild that he got the James Beard award. It's really cool because, you know, it's a small family run Thai restaurant in the Valley, but like during the pandemic, oh my God, we would go and sit in that alleyway and do the Thai taco Tuesday. And it was like one of my favorite memories of, of that time was kind of going and having that experience. Like there are places where you can go and have these really amazing, amazing experiences in LA. It's Super what dope. you were saying, basically. It's that backyard patio feel of just breaking yeah. bread with foods. And he's basically taken that and yeah, made it into something that's won awards at this point. Yeah, it's really special. It's very, very special. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible time to eat yeah. in LA with all yeah. of these sort of things that are going on. There's so there's obviously like Thai Taco Tuesday is very special, but there's tons of little things like that that are popping up all over the place. My friend um, has an amazing little spot downtown called Kippard, which is really fun. She, my friend Lydia owns, um, she and her partner Reed own DTLA cheese and they have a little tin fish and champagne bar downtown. That's just so fun. And I love going there. That's kind of my ladies night spot. And they've got a fun menu and they've got great cheese and tin fish and like delicious baguette and warm, you know, bird of barat. And, you know, you go and you drink wine and, it's it transports you to a totally different place. You don't feel like you're downtown LA. You know, you could be in Portugal or France or Italy doing the same thing. That's magical. And Tin Fish is really having a bit of a moment, isn't it? Oh my God. It's it's like having a moment to the point where now it's even been like memed, you know, yeah. where it's like, you know, kind of I love it. <laughs> but it's become a bit of a of a joke unto itself. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's become a parody of itself, the Tin yeah, Fish. Yeah, yeah. But like, don't stop eating tin fish. It's delicious and it's very good for you. Yeah, just don't maybe like Instagram it every single time. Exactly. Don't be yeah. that girl, you know? Don't be that girl. Well, speaking of being that girl, uh, I know that one of the things you do is food styling. Is that right? Mm -hmm. So what I want to talk a little bit about that. As someone who takes a lot of uh, food content on social media, I'm curious, what are some of the biggest mistakes people make when you see them trying to style their food uh, for social media? People are doing a really good job at it now. Um, mm -hmm. But like, so we get a lot of user generated content um, that, and I work with my social media person because she'll want to put a picture up and I'll be like, ah, that's like, I love that this person loved this meal and they took a picture of it. And, you know, but I don't want to put this on our, on our social media because it looks sloppy and not in a good way or like, you know, there's a crumpled napkin or, you know, just yeah. like things like look out of place. And the idea it's, it's really like one of the reasons why you need a food stylist on set is like, depending on what you look, you want to go for. It's like, if you want it to look natural, but beautiful, there is a, like an art to that, like, you know, taking the perfect bite out of something and having it placed just so, and, you know, the napkin, like there's like, and literally like, you know, an art to like draping a napkin. So it looks like somebody just kind of like casually dropped it on the table or, you know, they're just about to pick it up and the way that the fork is set. So it looks natural, but like, you know, everything has to look really like appealing and delicious. And um, that's kind of what I go into. I use the word sensual a lot, like mm -hmm. in, the, in the food selling, especially like in the work that I do with Flamingo Estate, it's all about like, 
you know, tactile sensuality and it can be a little bit messy, but in like a sexy kind of way, you know? I, that is such a good tip. Like, I feel lighting, like lighting, that's the other thing. Like, that's lighting. a huge, like, you've got to have good lighting. The food, yeah. if it's, you don't have good lighting, the food's not going to look good. A hundred percent. I try to capture everything I do during the day, just because I have not yes. been able to capture food at night. Like, in a way that really does it justice, even when my poor wife or dining companion, whoever they may be, holds up their light, just never comes out right, you know? It takes a lot of tweaking. That is a really good tip, just sort of like take in the surrounding and make sure there's nothing that's like distracting, whether it's a crumpled napkin or something. Like that is something I, I definitely don't actively, wouldn't actively think about, but it makes 100% sense. And now I'm also very honored that my video about how likely was reposted on the High Likely channel. Now that I know how scrupulously, are you yeah, kidding? Now that I know, Great. Now that I know how scrupulously you guys take that stuff, I feel uh, you know I'm gonna I, I feel pretty accomplished. Not gonna lie. Yeah, I'm really like I I'm very like committed to our um, our social media presence, and and I work very closely with our designers and and our social media person to kind of like keep the vibe, you know, keep the vibe fun and keep it right and keep the content looking really good. And I work with um, a photographer to do all of our food photography and style all that. And, you know, oh, I'm you, pretty you guys do a fantastic job. It honestly, it reminds me, speaking of Molly Bass, actually, it reminds me a little bit of her vibe in terms of like how her, yeah, her cookbooks and whatnot are styled. And that's oh, sort of like my God. her new cookbook, like you will freak out it is so amazing like she worked with her husband ben willett who's an incredibly mm -hmm. talented designer and you know obviously a lot of other people but man it's i don't i don't think it's out yet but it's it's unbelievable it's i can't really, wait it's it's like no cookbook i've ever seen before the design is it made me want to do a cookbook you know i'm like i don't feel like i'm there yet we're not ready for a cookbook maybe after our third location which we're looking for right now um maybe then we'll you know, get into cookbook land, but yeah, it's so inspiring. I get getting to work on cookbooks is really, really great. I had another shoot on Monday that I was working on a friend's book and I'm like, oh, so cool. It's so cool. I, I love a good cookbook and it's real. I mean, yeah, the recipes are one thing, but it's as much about sort of the pictures and like the, the styling of it and the vibe. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, oh yeah, there's, there's a vibe that I get when I'm cooking from a Molly Bass cookbook that I just don't get when I'm cooking from like, you know, a Gordon Ramsay cookbook or something. It's no. just not, as sexy, you know, her voice is so she's so fun. She's such a fun person. She's exactly. excellent. She's an excellent chef, but she does it in a way like kind of talking about pretension. Like I'm really like I'm allergic to pretension. Like, you know, I I love luxury and I love things to, you know, feel gorgeous. And, you know, I love kind of the high low of life but like once you get pretentious about it like i'm just like turned off look this podcast is a no pretension zone uh we we, we <laughs> are allergic to it um so we are very much on the same page well look speaking of things that are in no ways pretentious i cannot let you leave without talking about your experience as a chopped champion <laughs> Do you still have the trophy? Do you keep it next to your bedside table and wake up every day and just say, I fucking did it every single day? Yeah. Polish every morning. <laughs> what was that like? That's, I mean, I, I've been watching that show since, you know, like I was in high school. I like, it's, it's iconic yeah. to meet somebody that has won it. So I'm, I'm, I'm starstruck. Yeah. That, that was one thing I think, you know, 
I was so kind of focused on kind of being ready for it. And, you know, because I come from an acting background, I'd done film and videos and all kinds of different stuff. Like I almost took it for granted and I have other friends that were on Chopped. I'm like, oh, I'll do Chopped. You know, they asked me to be on Chopped. I'll be on Chopped, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, not really realizing, like, kind of the scope of it. And after I won, you do this really long, like, two-hour exit interview where they you have to go back through the entire episode to talk about every single thing and give them all these sound bites so that when they go back in to edit it, you know, that's where they put all the, you know, off-camera um, voice stuff. And he asked me, the guy who was interviewing me asked me a question. He said, did you ever think that you would be sitting here, um, after having one chopped? And it was like the scene in Ratatouille where, um, the food critic like eats the Ratatouille and suddenly he's like in his grandmother's kitchen. And he asked me that question. And suddenly I was sitting on the couch in Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin. I was obsessed with Food Network, obsessed with it. And I was sitting on the couch and I was watching Food Network and I burst into tears because like that little me who like, you know, the second they got cable, they were watching Food Network and it was all Emeril Lagasse and, you know, everybody else that was on and chopped and the beginning competition shows. And I was like, holy shit, I can't believe I'm sitting here. And it was yeah. like, it just like struck me at this moment, like really struck me and just the, the, you know, kind of the cathartic, um, experience that I had in that moment was, was really powerful. And, and, um, yeah, I mean, getting, getting to be on the show was, it was a lot of fun and it's very real and the, the stress is really high and the stakes are high and, you know, you're having to cook, but you're also having to perform and Ted is coming over and he's talking to you and the judges are, you know, asking you questions and you're running around, you have 20 minutes to make an appetizer and 30 minutes to make entree and dessert. Like clock doesn't stop. I cut myself, you know, the clock doesn't stop. You have to run over to a sink and they have to bandage you and there's nowhere to put anything. You have this tiny, tiny workspace, <laughs> you're like throwing oh, shit floor like everybody's just like throwing stuff on the floor like that's it there's no there's you know do you remember any of your boxes um i don't like yeah i mean i remember like ingredients that i gave up that i didn't want um but yeah i mean the first round because i did two episodes i did the i was in a tournament you know so i won the first episode that i was on and then in the actual like finale tournament um i was eliminated um, but yeah, in the first round I gave up Chef Boyardee raviolis. Um, that was one ingredient. There was another ingredient, um, pork uterus. So I, I gave up. So, and I was in a casino round. That's, that's why I was able to like give up the ingredient. So you were able to give up an ingredient, but then you had to go over to a roulette table and gamble. Uh-huh. And if you landed on your color, you got a lucky ingredient to replace the one that you didn't want. But if you roll and it's not your color, it's not, you know, you roll red and it, you know, comes up black, then you get an unlucky ingredient. And so it's kind of, you know, you didn't know if you were going to get something good or bad. So gambling was involved anyway. And then in the final round, um, in the dessert round, um, the ingredient that I didn't want to use was a rotisserie chicken and I had to like double down and they, they were like, okay, 
you know, if you roll lucky on the roulette table, then you get the lucky ingredient. If you roll unlucky on the roulette table, then you go over to this slot machine. And if you win on the slot machine, then you get a lucky ingredient. But if you lose on the slot machine, you're going to get the worst ingredient all of chopped history. And so I doubled down and got cow's eyeballs. Um, oh, for dessert? Yeah. What did you yeah. do? I made ice cream. That's I what made how ice- was it? It was fine, actually. And like, there are so many worse ingredients I could have gotten. Like, you know, I was like, oh, they could give me like smoked mackerel or, you know, just, I don't know. There's like, there's like, like a um, century egg, you know, there's things that like really like fuck up a dessert. Yeah. Um, but they brought out the cow's eyeballs and I was like, oh, this is just like collagen and like gelatin. And so I got the it. And I, yeah. You know, I got over to the my my cutting board and I and I sliced a piece off of it right away to see what it tasted like. And all the judges were like, whoa, <laughs> you just ate that straight. And I'm like, I mean, what are you going to do? You have to know. And so I just chopped it up and I threw it in my creme and glaze. That's amazing. Uh, I, I'm going to go back and watch the episode just to relive this moment. Um, <laughs> Do you mind if I give you a made-up box and you can tell me what you would do with it? Sure. Okay, I'm gonna go off okay. the dome here. Okay, that's okay. gonna and be. We, tell me what round it is. Oh, we, good point. No, entree or dessert. We'll make this a little easy. We'll do the entree. Okay. Okay, entree. Entree. Okay. Mm-hmm. We're gonna go with frozen spring rolls. Oh, like so, like whole, like frozen, whole, like you, yeah. you buy like frozen yeah. spring rolls. Exactly. Exactly whole frozen spring rolls we're gonna in the in the spirit of tinned fish we're gonna go with tinned anchovies okay we're gonna go with uh whipped cream from a can so like sweet whipped cream sweet whipped cream yep like ready whip okay and then finally we're gonna give you uh celery root celery root okay I feel like I feel like I'm gonna make a celery root puree with the ready whip. So the celery root has got a little bit of sweetness, and I use the ready whip as a cream component in the puree. Ah, oh, man, I don't know. It might be like super ambitious. I wonder if I can unroll the spring rolls Ooh. and use that pastry to like wrap a like maybe like a little piece of halibut in the spring roll pastry and kind of like fry that interesting the celery root and maybe the anchovy yeah. Okay. So celery puree, I'm going to try using the spring roll wrappers to wrap a piece of fish that I then fry, like pan fry. And then the spring roll vegetables, I get match those with fresh vegetables. So I use the inside, but then I go and get like shredded carrot and, um, you know, whatever pea shoots or, you know, whatever's in the, in the inside cabbage. Um, and match those with fresh like chiffonade vegetables 
And then I make an anchovy dressing that I toss the veggies with. So it's like celery puree with this pastry wrapped, you know, spring roll wrapped fish uh, with a little fresh veggie salad on top with anchovy dressing. I think that would low key slap personally. <laughs> I, think I, so think too. May, I think you may have just found a new highly likely Highland Park dinner menu. <laughs> and and if the spring roll wrapper didn't work for the outside, I would just pull it all off and fry it and almost make like a breadcrumb thing that I would do with the anchovy and make kind of like a breadcrumb anchovy thing and dress like, the fish. Just then sear the fish and just put the fish on top. So I'd have I'd have some options. Well, that's one of the beauties of it too, is like you don't know how some of this stuff is gonna go. You just gotta kinda try it out. Oh, you, you have no idea. You kind of yeah. have to go in with an idea though. Like the trick is like, okay, like here are the things I know I can make in 20 minutes or 30 minutes. And you just like figure it out. You modify whatever it is. Well, I want to congratulate you for winning the first ever <laughs> LED podcast round of Chopped. Um, so you are our Chopped champion. Hey, um, I love it. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been an absolutely delightful conversation. I am so excited to visit Highly Likely Highland Park. Where can people find you in the meantime? Um, well, obviously, you can come and find me in West Adams at um, our West Adams location. Um, our Instagram for um, Highly Likely is um, uh, It's Highly Likely. And um, I'm Kat Turner was here. So Kat with a K, Kat Turner was here as my personal Instagram. So We'll put all this in the show notes. So... <laughs> we're we have a really great wine program in West Adams and um we're doing really fun bi-weekly Wednesday wine tastings with our beverage director Jose who is an absolute riot. Um that's actually where I'm going after this. It's uh we're having the hot boys of wine. So some of our favorite um male winemakers um we're tasting some of their wines tonight and um it's free for our wine club members. So I definitely would encourage anyone to sign up for our wine club, which is super fun. And um, to follow our Instagram to um, keep up with our Wednesday wine tastings, Thirst Trap Wednesdays. I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. I was too busy signing up for the wine club. That sounds amazing. Uh, <laughs> you really know how to sell that. That sounds incredible. And it comes uh, with a bottle of hot sauce. So that's also important to note. The highly hot sauce? Mm-hmm excellent hot sauce you guys are definitely going to want it so we'll put all thank that in the show notes um chef thank you so much thank you nice to talk to you thanks for listening to another episode of the la food podcast thanks to our guests kat turner I don't know about you, but I can't wait to go have dinner at the new location of Highly Likely. And thanks also to the gorgeous Father Saul. If you like what you heard today, please go to wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a rating, a review, subscribe if you should be so inclined. If you're looking for me, you can find me at the LA Countdown on TikTok, Instagram, and Threads. That's T-H-E-L-A-C-O-U-N-T-D-O-W-N. You can also find us at the LA Food Pod on Instagram. That's L-A-F-O-O-D-P-O-D. And we'll have another episode coming for you next week.